This morning, I want to share with you a time to act. You see, our impression of Jesus has often been one of quiet personality who submitted to the human authorities and unfair treatments. That's the impression of Jesus we have. We are not used to seeing Jesus acting up forcefully. But remember in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which says in verse 7, there is a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. And the time to speak up has come for Jesus. In John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, the time has come for Jesus to remind us on three important things, important teachings. And the first teaching is the priority of God in our worship has to be respected. The priority of God in our worship is so essential as we continue to serve and and grow together. If you have the Bible, uh, please turn with me to chapter 2 of John, verses 13 to 17 first, as we expound on this first point, the priority of God in our worship. Uh, you can, if you can see the little fonts there, you are welcome to see that. But I want to invite you to read together. You see, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul reminds Timothy to devote to the public reading of Scripture. To read publicly together in Scripture is very biblical. We are not used to it. You know, it also helps us not to be a consumer, just sitting passively waiting to be taught, to be, you know, shared on God's Word. So your participation will really help. But it is also biblical that we pay attention to the public reading of Scriptures. Okay, so let's read together, uh, either on the screen or from your, your Bible uh, in verses 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So priority of God in our worship. Jesus uh, there, there were two cleansings of the uh, temple recorded in the Bible. And we are most familiar with the second cleansing, which took place after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it was recorded in John. Uh, it was recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke. But only John, only John here, noted the first cleansing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the Bible says Jesus celebrated the Passover because he was a Jew who obeyed the Mosaic law. And you remember the the Passover is an annual festival that all the men in the Jewish community are expected to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to worship God. And it commemorates the deliverance of the Israelites from the slavery in Egypt. To free his people, the Lord sent ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And the Pharaoh only relented on the 10th plague when all the firstborns, all the firstborns, men and animal, in the land of Egypt were slaughtered. But the Hebrews' firstborn, they were spared from the judgment of God by putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost 
as instructed by the Lord. And the Lord passed over their houses and spared the firstborns of the Hebrews. And when Jesus went into the temple and saw what happened in the temple, but more specifically, in the outer court of the Gentiles, the only place in the temple the Gentiles can or allowed to congregate, he begins to act. And the apostle John depicts the intensity of Jesus' actions in the temple in one long sentence extending all the way from verses 14 to 16. It goes like this. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of course, he drove them all out in the temple with the sheep and oxen to pour out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Just one go. It shows the intensity of Jesus' action as the Apostle John tried to portray that. Now, may I remind you that though Jesus was forceful, but he was not violent. He was not cruel. There was no indication that he injured anyone with his whip of cords. And verse 16 tells us there are two reasons why Jesus was so forceful in his action. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And that's why. Two reasons. First reason, because this is my father's house. And when the place of worship, when the Father's house is in bad shape, Jesus acted as the Son of God. Jesus acted rightfully for God the Father. He was not interfering with the affairs of the temple. That's His. That's His Father's. He was reminding the Jews to prioritize God in their place of worship. And by doing so, Jesus is declaring his identity as the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, it is a reminder to us that anything that interferes with the worship of God or diminish the worship of God needs to be taken away, need to give place for God because it is a worship. Second reason, not only because this is my father's house, but because the temple has become a house of trade, a house of Commerce. The custom of selling approved sacrificial animals and exchanging of various types of silver and copper money for the temple coins, temple coinage, probably began as a convenience for pilgrims who has to come back once a year to celebrate Passover, but they come from different regions of the Roman Empire. And to make it easy for them, instead of looking out for the sacrificial lambs and approved ones, unblemished, one-year-old, they get all this ready, and they can just slack and be ready to, to offer the sacrifice. You know, we are, by, by Jesus' day, this practice has escalated into a major business responsibility for the priests or the temple workers and has replaced spiritual worship in the courtyard during the Passover. We're not sure if there were corruptions involved, even so some commentators alluded to that. Uh, but the priests had transformed the temple area from a place of worship into a place of commerce. 
And you can imagine, with all these commotions, it was virtually impossible for the Gentiles to worship there, and Jesus put a stop to such practice. You see, when good intention interferes with the worship of God, the good intention must give way to God. Because God is the reason why we are here to worship You know, for many years, we hosted Christmas breakfast and Chinese New Year breakfast for our church. Until like some three years ago, the pastors got together and say, it's time to put a stop to it. It started with a good intention of uh, inviting the community to come and enjoy the breakfast in a festive time and to come to worship. And also we can fellowship together. So everybody potluck can bring your favorite dish and just share with everybody. It was wonderful. But then it became later and later. Instead of 8 o'clock to 8.45, uh, people came at 8.30 and look at all the delicious dishes. They can't resist. They have to try. So by 8.45, there were still people lining up, still eating. And supposed to, by then, we're supposed to stop serving and supposed to prepare to come into the sanctuary for worship. But it, it just gets so difficult. Even ushers have a hard time to bring people in for worship that most worship services during those festive times uh, would start the worship at 9 o'clock with hardly many souls. Maybe one quarter, one-fifth of the people would be worshiping as we begin the worship. And the noises out there are actually louder than the singing inside. And, and after observing that for a few years, we say it's time. It's time. It is interfering with the worship. Now, we are not stopping eating. We all enjoy food, good food. But after worship, enjoy all you want. During lunchtime, enjoy all you want. But when a meal time, a fellowship time, before worship interferes with worship, it's time to let go. I'm sure if Jesus comes to our church seeing that sin and with that whip of cords, I think he will strike me first as a senior pastor and say, Albert, I call you to be the senior pastor. This is how you lead your congregation to worship me. You are the first to go. It is a reminder that as we come together to worship, the place of worship is a place of worship and God is the main character. God is the main reason, the only reason why we are here. And Jesus was just doing the right thing as he was called to do. And in verse 17, when they saw, when the disciples saw Jesus doing that, they recalled Psalm 69, verse 9. That says, zeal for your house will consume me. That Jesus has the consuming zeal for the proper use of the temple and the ultimate glory that offers to God. And remember, this zeal consumed Jesus. This zeal for God will consume Jesus when this zeal and absolute obedience to God will propel Jesus to walk the path of the cross under trials and eventual death on the cross. 
So Jesus is God's zealous son who is willing to endure any suffering or hardship that comes because of his intense devotion to God. And the disciples remember that. You know, when we do not pay attention to the happenings of ministry, different ministries, worship, fellowship, small groups, and different ministries, they tend to fall apart. When people are not paying attention and trying to improve and grow on it, they just tend to fall apart naturally. Almost like the second law of the thermodynamics. Things fall apart after a while, if unattended. See, someone needs to say that this is not right. Let's do something about it. Just like in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus was speaking to the seven churches, to the church of Ephesus, he said, but I have this against you. There's a time for that. And Jesus was speaking up for the, for the house of God, to be the house of God. He calls for repentance to make the, house, the church more like the church in Revelation. And same for us today. You know, in a typical worship, we have songs, we have prayers, we have sermons, we have offerings, we have benediction, uh, we have different parts that make up a worship together. Now, certain individual may be uh, touched, uh, leaning more towards a certain part of the worship that speaks to the more effectively and powerfully. But, you know, the key is God. The key is God. That we're singing to God, that we are praying to God, that well, our, we, we, our sermon is to speaking for God and we are obeying God's word and God's will. That's the key. If God is not being prioritized in the worship, then it is merely a social gathering. And Jesus spoke powerfully on this important point. And then secondly, the sufficiency of Jesus' redemption over all religion. The sufficiency of Jesus' redemption over all religion. And it is found in verses 12, uh, 18 to 22. Again, I want to invite you to read public reading of scriptures together with me, either through the screen or through your cell phone or through uh, your, your, your paper Bible, okay, together. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple is definitely the moral, the religious, the political center of the Jews in Jesus' time. It embodies the culture and identity of the Jews. By cleansing the temple, you will expect a strong pushback from the community. It is just too controversial. It is like chasing out the elected officials from the White House and the Capitol Hills with the whip of courts. It's unthinkable, right? Something like that. But no one objects to what Jesus did, right? But they ask about the basis of his doing. Who authorized you, you know? 
to do all this. See, they know that Jesus is right. And the temple has turned into a noisy marketplace. They know that the services has been compromised. Just no one talk about that. They sense too that something of God's divine and righteous anger at work in Jesus. So it was not that whip of cords that drives up people, but the moral power that strikes to the heart of the people's conscience. And Jesus drove them out with the moral power, with the biblical mandate. The Jews who were present in the courtyard, they wanted Jesus to perform some miraculous sign to prove that he has the divine authority to cleanse the temple. And they were only trying to dodge Jesus' indictment against them. But Jesus gave them a sign, but not the kind they wanted. They wanted immediate demonstration of prophetic authority, you know, like the way Moses and Aaron performed miracles before Pharaoh, to prove that they are sent by Jehovah to free the Hebrew slaves. And they were looking something like that, but Jesus was not offering that. Instead, Jesus announced a miracle that would vindicate the authority, his authority, after he died. Jesus was, has only one sign to give. Verse 19 says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And because they were slow in their understanding, the Jews misunderstood Jesus' sign, thinking that it was the physical temple that King Herod the Great had spent 46 years to renovate and expand. That's his way of pleasing the Jewish population. But, you know, when Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, Jesus was predicting his death and resurrection which will create a new covenant with God and make the services of the Jerusalem temple absolute. And this is not the first time Jesus mentioned that. In Matthew chapter, 20, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, when some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign? but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that sign? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, by suggesting this action, Jesus was also implying that the old temple and its services has served its purpose. He has come to establish a new temple and a new way of worship. You know, our commentator gave a very insightful uh, understanding. He said the action of Jesus is more than an example of prophetic protest against corrupt religion. It is a sign of the end of all religion. Because Jesus is the only answer. Jesus offered himself as the solution to the human predicament. And what Jesus has done resonates with 
John chapter 14, verse 6 says, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. It just perfectly dovetail with that. And in verses 21 22, John interpreted Jesus' true meaning for his readers, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And even Jesus' disciples did not understand what he meant until after his resurrection, and they then believed the Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. What does it mean when Jesus said, This is the body? That Jesus' body was a temple. It's a unique sense. It, it was the body in which the Word had become flesh. Just like the temple where the Jews offered sacrifices, Jesus offered His own body as a sacrifice to die on the cross on our behalf and rose again on the third day that secured salvation for us so that we can be reconciled with the Father and we've experienced the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has ended all religion when he said he is the answer to all. The sufficiency of Jesus' redemption over all religion. You know, for some of you in the audience who might be new to the church, who, who might not have um, the, 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 the Bible uh, background or growing up in the church, it can be a hard saying to you. When Jesus said, I am the only way, I am the way and no other way, it is very offensive to a lot of modern men and women where tolerance is expected. Of course, we need to tolerate, need to tolerate different styles and preferences and languages and cultures and all that, but not the truth. Truth can't be tolerated. Truth has to be respected and submitted to. You see, you and I as humans often come to this dilemma that we need God but we also reject God. We want God, but we also push away God. Because we want choices. We want our own kind of gods, or, or idols, we call it. Yes, if there's a God, I want that God to be the God I want, that I define, that suit my perception and understanding and not any kind of God. I don't want a God that offends me, that makes my life difficult, that asks me for, 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 for a certain uh, standard that, that I, I don't like it. I only want a God who suits my need. That's a human dilemma. We want choices. We want our own kind of God. And the Bible calls it idol. We want to define God. Ultimately, we want to be God. And that's the temptation from the very beginning when Adam and Eve was in the Garden of Eden. That when the serpent tempted them and said, you know, eat that fruit, that forbidden fruit, because you'll be like God. And they gave in. They succumbed to that. That temptation has never left us. And whatever God or the idols we have trusted for our own salvation that we create on our own have failed because humanity is still miserable and helpless, more so than ever before. 
Jesus said, I am the way. We need to let God define Himself and submit ourselves to Him when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, Jesus spoke strongly towards the superficiality of human condition among even the believers, among the followers, the early followers. Look at verses 23 to 25. I'm going to invite you to read together. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about men, for he himself knew what was in men. You know, besides cleansing the temple, Jesus did a few, uh, a, a number of miraculous signs while he was in Jerusalem. And they were probably healings, uh, maybe exorcism. And consequently, many people believed in his name, the Bible says. Now, this doesn't mean that he, they placed saving faith in him as the Son of God. Often the people who observed his miracles concluded that he was a prophet like Elijah, like Elisha, because they all performed miracles. But they were not always willing to acknowledge him as God. And Jesus said he was not entrusting himself to them. He knew people to be essentially untrustworthy. Jesus has divine knowledge about the heart of men and women and their capacity for deception and conspiracy. He doesn't need anyone to explain to him. He's a creator. He knows us more than anyone else in this world. He knew that the initial enthusiasm and faith based on miracles would evaporate after a while. He, he did not place his destiny in the hands of any other and further, he did not commit himself to anyone to testify for him, to do some public relation works, in a sense that Jesus was not dependent on human approval. And, and that's a very hard saying, but that's a very real saying. Because we struggle with consistency. We struggle with commitment in our marriage, in our family, in our responsibility, in our position, in expectations, in our promises, we all struggle with consistency, especially over a long period of time. See, we, go, we all go through different stages of life, and with each stage brings with its new sets of challenges, experiences, lessons to learn, temptations to deal with, adjustments that we will need in order to be able to be effective in that stage of life. Sometimes we thrive through them, other times we stumble badly. So journeying together is a phrase that we often remind our congregation, we must journey together. Journey together by joining a community group or by joining a small group with a few men and women we all journey together to support, to pray, to edify, and to grow together 
as people of God. And the message today I have for you is Jesus calls us to prioritize God and His plan of salvation despite our superficiality. Prioritize God in our worship, in our lives, and His plan of salvation. He's the only way despite our superficiality. In my conclusion, I just want to remind you and myself that today we need the voice of God more than ever. So many voices out there but we need the voice of God. The voice of God is always truthful, always loving, but uncompromising. It's truthful, it's loving, it's uncompromising, and it tends to tear down our defenses. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor from United Kingdom, who used to be the doctor of the royal family, and God called him into pastoral ministry, a great expositor of God's word. He said something very profound, and I was really moved by that and convicted by that. He said, you will never make yourself feel you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. Do you feel that sometimes? Our defenses go up very quickly when we are challenged, especially in the soft spots. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. <laughs> we know how to love ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. It's called selfishness. We are born with that. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we sin, we will never do that. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. The wonder our world tried to kill God, try to eliminate God, try to take God from vocabularies, try to cancel God as much as we can from as many platforms as we know how to. Because if there's no God, you are free to do anything you want. There's no judgment. There's no consequences. There's no guilt. And today we need God more than ever. Today we need to focus on God we need to invite God into our lives. We need to place an important platform for God to speak into us. Because anybody else speaking to you, you naturally come up with a defense mechanism. Even pastors preaching. That we may not know your personal life, and maybe some passages that we expound in, some illustrations that we give somehow hit you. It's like, hey, who told you that? And you don't always like some preachers who may confront you, knowingly or unknowingly, a defense mechanism just come up. That's what we need, God. And if 
this is the first experience of you coming to church and you have never encountered God. I just want to exhort you to hear God's voice, to give Jesus a chance because he loves to come into your life and show you the way because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the power of the gospel of John. By recording Jesus cleansing the temple, the intention is that you may know Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God. And by believing Him, you may have life, new life in Jesus Christ. And as we expound on the cleansing of the temple of God, it sounds like it is for Christians, but it is for everybody to come to know Jesus, to submit to Him, and to invite Him to speak into your situations. I wonder what will Jesus speak to the young adults in our congregation today? Would Jesus be saying, you know what? I know you are following me, but you have many gods and you have many voices and you are bombarded every day. Sometimes my voice is louder than other voices, but other times the, all these voices drove my voice out of your life. And Jesus is telling you, I want you to commit to make my voice to be the voice of all other voices. I wonder what Jesus will speak to the adults in our congregation. I wonder what Jesus will be saying to you, you know what, by this time of your life, you have tasted, you have experienced life. And you know what? Ultimately, you'll know that there's nothing that satisfies you permanently. It's time to come back to me. I'm waiting. You have promised to follow me. You hasn't shown. You have committed in different retreats and different meetings and said you will follow Jesus. But you have drifted. It's time. It's time to come back because there's nothing that will satisfy you. You can prolong your life for another 20 years living out the same thing and test it and experience and go and see sights and all those things. Ultimately, they are the same. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I wonder how Jesus will speak to the seniors. Well, well you define yourself whether you're a senior or not. Seniors is a wide range and categories nowadays. Uh, younger seniors, middle seniors, and senior seniors. I think I'm, I'm over here, I think. What would Jesus speak to me and some of our seniors who are here? Would Jesus be saying, you know what? You have seen life, you have lived life enough to know that you yourself trying to live a life of discipleship is not going to make the cut. You yourself trying your best to try to finish well is not going to happen. And you have lived long enough and experienced enough to know that. Let me be your sustainer. 
Let me be the beginner and the finisher of your faith. Just like that song that reminds you, He will hold me fast. And maybe this is the message that Jesus will speak to some of you. That as you come to the last stage of life, facing death, which we don't know when it will come, that it is God who sustains me. It is God who finishes my faith. It is God who will hold me fast for me to finish well. What is God saying to you today? Let us pray together. Lord, you reminded us through the Gospel of John that by writing all these records, it is to help us to know that you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And by believing in you, we will have life. Lord, I pray that even with the cleansing of the temple as a teaching this morning, that we will learn how to live an abundant life in Christ as we go through different stages of life. Open our hearts to your word, to your word. Let your voice be the voice for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.